If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 8. We're continuing on just walking through Matthew. Have you ever been tricked before? It's a fun feeling, right? Yay. A couple years ago, uh, quite a few years ago now, uh, Haley and I did a quick little vacation to Los Angeles, which I know, like, who would take a vacation to Los Angeles? I get it, I know, but we decided we wanted to go to Los Angeles. And on uh, one particular day, we decided that we wanted to go walk the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which is like the staple thing that you do in Los Angeles. So we pull up, we find this parking spot, we pay for parking, and my wife looks at me and she says, hey, just so you know, as we walk down the street, there's going to be a lot of people, they're going to be dressed up like characters, they're going to want you to take a picture with them. Do not take a picture with them. They just want your money. Cool, can do that. Weirdo that looks like great value brand Ninja Turtle, don't walk up to him. I think I can handle that. That seems pretty good. Let's do this. So we take off walking, and we're just walking down. We're looking at the different shops. We're kind of looking at the different the stars on the ground and the names and all that kind of cool stuff. And this guy approaches me, normal-looking guy. You know, now, and, and you got to understand, I have a problem with how extroverted I am. So when someone talks to me, I'm like, someone to talk to? I love talking to people in the Walmart checkout line. Let's try it out. Um, so, so anyways, this guy walks up to me. He's like, hey, where are you from? I'm like, oh, man, someone's talking to me. I'm from Albuquerque, and he's chatting with me about Breaking Bad. I watched Breaking Bad. That's an Albuquerque ride, and we're, yeah, I've actually never seen this show. And he, he looks at me, and he goes, hey, I, uh, you know, I'm a small-time kind of musician. I do, I do my own rap music. Um, I was just, I, I'm trying to get my name, my brand out there a little bit more. I'd love for you to listen. And he hands me this CD. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, like, I'll give it a try and see, see what I think of it, man. And I go to walk off, and he grabs me by the shoulder, and he turns me back around. He goes, hey, those things are generally $15. Um, I'll only charge you 10 for now. I was like, oh, no, I don't want this, then. I don't want to buy your crummy rap CD. Like, I'll go somewhere else. That's, that's not what I'm interested in. And he's, like, not taking it back, and he and I are kind of escalating. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want your CD, man. And he's like, hey, $10, and you can just, you know, take my CD. So finally, Haley's like, Philip give the man $5, let's leave. So I like begrudgingly get in my wallet, pull out my $5 bill, hand it to him. He like says goodbye and I walk off, get back to the rental car we have. The rental car doesn't even have a CD player. I couldn't even, couldn't even listen to it. I just threw it away. I was so mad that that guy scanned me out of $5. And I know that's not a lot, but I, you know, I felt tricked. You ever have that feeling? And that's carried with me because now anytime I'm in a crowded place, it's actually kind of changed my personality. If someone walks up to me and they're trying to strike up a conversation, my first response is not, hey, this guy's being friendly and wants to talk to me. My first response is, what do you want? What are you trying to scam from me? And so uh, this last March when we went to Cairo, we went to the big giant Cairo Bazaar, which is where all the shops are, and it's really, really crowded. And we go into this one shop, and the shop owner brings out this kind of tray of juices, and, and he offers, he's offering juice. I'm like, no, man, I don't want your juice. I know better than to take what you're offering, because you're going to offer me a juice, and then be like, that's $45, and I'm not going to pay that. And so I was like, no, thank you. I don't want it. And then, like, after we left, my, my sister-in-law was like, hey, that was really rude. You know, when they offer you that's out of their own generosity, and they're, they're really trying to be hospitable, and you just said no, you need to try to be more. And I was like, well, some guy at L.A. scammed me six years ago, so now I don't take any. You, ever, you have those feelings, those situations, right? This is like the number one reason none of us answer phone calls that we don't recognize anymore, because we know better. Because this feeling of where something is presented uh, as this certain way, and then we get into it and find out it was misrepresented, and it was actually to take advantage of us, and it's a really bad feeling. 
So our defenses go up, and we're a lot less trusting of future similar situations, even if the new situation is purely innocent. And, and I think in some ways, now, now hear me out, I'm not trying to be critical, but I think if we're not careful, even if it's unintentionally, the church has kind of fallen culprit to conveying this type or perpetuating this type of scheme. And again, I'm not saying it's ill-intended, I'm not saying we're trying to be, but it comes across something like this, hey, come on to church, come follow Jesus, and I'm just telling you, when you come follow Jesus, man, he's going to take away your sin, he's going to heal your ailments, he's going to fix your relationships, and in a lot of ways, those things are true. Jesus is absolutely going to take away your sins. I absolutely believe Jesus makes our relationships better. When my wife and I are both following Jesus first, our relationship is better than if we weren't. I believe those things are true, but in this invitation of alleviation, come to Jesus and he'll take away all the bad things in your life, we sometimes misrepresent what it actually means to follow Jesus. And the result in some extent, is people feeling lied to or tricked or taken advantage of. So last year, there was a professor at a college called Lancaster Bible College, Dr. Mark Farham. He wrote an article noting particular reasons people uh, were deconstructing their faith. And just in his experience and the research he had done, what are this reason that it seems like the younger generation are leaving the church and breaking down their faith and not really believing? And this was number five on his list. I thought it was really interesting. He said this. They had deeply felt expectations for life and what God would do. Where do they gain those from? They gain those from a lifetime in church that, well, if I come to church every Sunday and if I sing the songs and if I pray the prayers and if I give the money and if I read my Bible, then all of these dreams and aspirations that I have, the the financial crisis, all of this should be alleviated in Jesus. So all I got to do is be faithful to Jesus and I don't have any problems in my life anymore. But the problem is, what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when they're disappointed? And when they're disappointed, they could not bear the thought of worshiping the God they felt had let them down. That is to say, they felt like they'd been given all of these promises about how if they would just come to church and pray and read their Bibles, God would make sure all the good stuff in their life panned out. But when it didn't happen, they felt like they were left to drown in despair not knowing who was sincere in hospitality and who was trying to scam them out of money by selling them a crummy rap CD. And so they just stopped. What does the Bible have to say about that? How does the gospel present this conundrum? Let's just jump in. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 14. Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. And when evening came, they brought him out to many, or they brought in many who were demon possessed, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was being spoken through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled, that he himself took our weaknesses, he carried our diseases. And when Jesus saw the large crowd around him, he gave the order to, the other, uh, to go to the other side of the sea. And a scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have dens, and Birds of the sky, they have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, well, first let me just go bury my father. And Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Two, two parts in the story I want to look at. The first one is what we've really been tracking through the last two weeks. So if you're interested, you can go back to last week or week before last and kind of catch up on that. But it's another story of healing that, that Matthew gives you three stories of healing. 
And he's going to give you a little blurb about following Jesus. And he's going to give you another three stories of healing. And he's going to tell you his personal call of following Jesus. And he's going to give you another three stories of healing. And then he's going to talk about what it was like to send all the disciples out. And so this is the pattern that Matthew's unfolding for you. So we can look at this other story of healing. Healing Peter's mother-in-law followed by the many others that come in after that. And there's a lot to be said about that that I really just don't have time to go into But the whole point gets boiled down to verse 17 when Matthew references back to Isaiah 53 and he says, this all happened so that what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that he himself took our weaknesses and he carried our disease. Matthew seems to be very clear. If you go back and you look at what this Messiah is supposed to be like, Jesus fulfilled all of those Old Testament passages. When people encountered Jesus, there is healing. That's Matthew's point. Jesus is the Messiah, so that when people encounter him, there is healing. There's physical healing of the leper and the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law, but there's also the relational healing of these three kind of classifications of people, the the oppressed people, women and and lepers who are the unclean and the outcast, the discluded people like the centurion and his family. Jesus begins to bridge those gaps. This is what we talked about last week. And as offensive as it might have seemed for some of the the elites, for plenty of others, this is the spark of hope that that starts a fire in an otherwise pitch black world for them. And this is crowds coming in. And I think the tendency is for us to want to stop there. We, We look at all that Jesus does in these healings, and we stop there, and we look up from the text, and we say, man, like who doesn't want to follow Jesus? Come follow Jesus. Your diseases are going to get healed. He's going to bring restoration. He's going to bridge these gaps. It's going to be incredible. Who wants to follow Jesus? And everyone like raises their hand. I want to follow Jesus. But we miss out where Matthew goes next. Because Matthew almost intentionally comes up for a breath of air to ensure that you actually know what following Jesus is like. And it's totally unexpected. Because if this is Matthew's sales pitch to get you to follow Jesus, he does a horrible job. Hey, you want to come buy our car? Our car's the greatest car. It's going to have everything good about it. It's going to take away all of the driving problems you've ever had. Oh, by the way, if you come drive our car, we're going to take away all your money. You don't want to sell a car that way. That's a horrible way to sell a car, right? But this is what Jesus does next. When Jesus saw a large crowd gather around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea, and a scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you. And Jesus said, Foxes have dens and birds have skies, but I got no place to lay my head. And then the next person, I'll follow you, but let me bury my father. Now the dead can bury their own dead. Follow me. You see, what Matthew is proposing here is that following Jesus is actually not the good life through the absence of suffering. It's about totally rethinking what the good life actually means. And this is the paradox of following Jesus. That following Jesus actually has two bars. One bar is the lowest bar you could ever imagine. It's just such a low bar that there is nobody so far outside the love of God that they are not invited in. The invitation goes to the unclean outcast, to the pagan centurion, to the lowly Jewish woman, to the demon-possessed. They can be set free from this caste system that rules their culture. They can be set free from their past. They can be set free from their brokenness. But then that bar is followed by a second bar. And it turns out, although the offer to be set free comes through faith in Jesus alone, 
The offer also comes with a second invitation to follow Jesus, and this bar is way higher than what you would ever expect. So if we could boil this down, you ready? This is probably going to be the most profound one point you've ever heard. You ready for this point? Intentionally living like Jesus is difficult. There it is. I don't want to lie to you. Intentionally living like Jesus is hard sometimes. In fact, it's hard a lot of the times. This is exactly what these two verses are communicating. So in verse 19, a scribe shows up, which is amazing in itself because the first three stories of outcast people, not one of the elites show up to that, but all of a sudden this scribe shows up, this guy that has authority and influence within Jewish society. I mean, scribes dressed differently so that when they walked through town, people could look at their outfit and realize how important this person was. If you wanted to influence the Jewish nation, this is the player you wanted on your team because he could change things. So he comes up to Jesus and he's like, Rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. I will give you my service. And you would think Jesus would look at that and say, this is exactly who I'm looking for to be on my team. We're going to rock Jerusalem and everything they stand for. Come join me, scribe. And instead Jesus says, foxes have dens and the birds of the skies have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There's a lot of interesting things here, but let me start with this phrase, son of man. Because that phrase, son of man, is a, heavily, uh, a, a heavy allusion back to particularly Daniel chapter 7. It's found over and over again in Daniel, but in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this messianic vision, and he says this in 7 verse 13. Suddenly one like a son of man was coming from the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people and nation and language should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It's an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Are you picking up the paradoxical irony here? Because that phrase, son of man, is supposed to carry this amazingly authoritative point within it, that the son of man, he actually has the rights to every kingdom. That he actually has the rights to every generation, to every nation, to every people. It is his dominion that's over everything. And Jesus looks at that, refers to himself as that son of man, and then says, and I got no place to lay my head. Do you see the irony of what's happening here? The one that has dominion over everything doesn't have a home to stop and rest in. It's the simultaneous reality of power and healing and victory, and the ever-present reality of difficulty in letting go of personal comforts. And Jesus knows that a scribe who takes pride in his position and his authority, he's going to have a hard time following Jesus in the way that he would expect to follow Jesus. So Jesus is blunt. You you can follow me, but it's going to mean giving up comfort and security in order to fully dedicate yourself to what I'm doing. And apparently another disciple overhears this, meaning someone that already follows Jesus, or to some extent follows Jesus. And so he pipes up and says, well, I I do want to follow you, Jesus, but i got to get to that point. So verse 21, Lord, another one of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. Now there's a lot going on here, and there's some different interpretations as to what this means. First let me go bury my father. Uh, The evangelical commentary on the Bible notes that they believe the man's father had probably already died, 
But actually, if you read most other commentaries, it's almost unanimous outside of that one that it seems unlikely that his dad was already dead. Particularly in Jewish culture, uh, when you didn't wait a very long time between someone dying and then burying somebody. In fact, there was to be really quick turnover from the point a body was, someone died, and you were to prepare the body and get them in a tomb pretty well as quickly as possible. And there was a lot more that came with it. But here's a quote from the Babylonian Talmud. It says this, It said that Rabbi Judah said in the name of Rob, a man should always be swift in burying the dead. This is the culture that Jesus is talking to. So the far more likely scenario is actually not that this man's dad has already died, but that this man felt obligated, especially given the Ten Commandments and the one that says honor your father and mother, should always be or should be right there to honor his parents until they die which would initiate this whole sequence of burial rituals and practices and divvying out the inheritance, which would usually include this Jewish idea of Yarzit, which was the year date that they would memorialize the deceased a year later and have candles. It was a year-long process, a lot of people think. Point being, this man responds as, Jesus, I really want to take you up on this following you idea, uh, even if it means there's no place to sleep. Like, I get it. I'll give up those comforts. But before I get to that point, I need to go home and help my dad. I need to help my family with the farm. And then when he does die, one of these days, I can take my inheritance, I can come back, and I can join up with what you're doing. And Jesus, again, uh, retorts with this unexpected response. Verse 22, Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That's really weird, right? I don't know about you, but I've never watched a dead person bury another dead person. By nature, dead people don't do things. So in short, it seems like Jesus is being intentionally hyperbolic in order to demonstrate just how intense following him should be. So much so that this man is actually invited to lay aside all of the cultural norms, the cultural expectations of how his life is to be lived, and perhaps even the inheritance that he was promised to have, and go follow Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. According to Jesus, to commit to following him means rethinking everything through a new paradigm where he and his ways, where Jesus and Jesus' ways are the constant priority. And Jesus knows this level of commitment, thanks man, I appreciate it. That's why you have an awesome associate pastor right there. And Jesus knows that this level of commitment, it's not for the faint of heart. It actually means sacrificing comfort and security. It means reprioritizing parents and family and occupation and all the things the world tells you is important. Jesus says, no, no, no. When you follow me, you rethink everything that's important because I become of first importance. And then Matthew just goes to the next story. He doesn't tell you what happened. He doesn't tell you how they responded. He doesn't say, and the scribe found the smoothest of rock and said, this shalt I use for a pillow and follow thee, Jesus. Like, there's none of that. It's just the man boarded the boat and they followed Jesus to the other side. Because the point is actually not in their response. The point is in your response. It's an invitation that you would consider yourself in their positions and actually take your priorities and hold them up side by side to the reality of following Jesus And you might actually conclude, hey, this following Jesus thing, it'll bring healing, it'll bring forgiveness, it's going to be the most incredible thing, but it's going to be hard. It's actually going to be 
difficult. And this is a theme Matthew calls us back to over and over and over again. Matthew does not want to trick you. He is very clear. Following Jesus will radically change your life in the best way possible, but it will be the hardest thing you've done. So he goes on to tell three more stories, and he tells his own calling. Where Jesus said, follow me, and Matthew had to leave his tax collector booth to give up all of his status, all of his money, and follow Jesus with a bunch of other Jewish men that probably hated him. So Matthew gave it up. And he's going to go on, he's going to tell more and more stories. And then it builds to this point in Matthew chapter 16. Where in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus drops this kind of big phrase where he says, Whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. And one of these days, in like seven years, we'll get there. But for now, just this universal cost of following Jesus, it's so clear. And it's far more difficult than what we want to think about. Because what is stage one of following Jesus? Deny yourself. That's stage one. You deny yourself to follow Jesus. Matthew is not interested in tricking you into following Jesus. Come on, follow Jesus. It's going to be so easy. You're never going to have any more problems. No, he's going to say, come follow Jesus, and it's going to cost you more than you could ever dream. It'll mean losing your comfort, your security. It'll mean operating in a completely different way than what you believe to be normal. So why do it? Because it will put you in proximity of your Savior. Because it will actually make you more like Jesus. Now, this is really hard for us to stomach today. This this concept of self-denial, it really stands against everything we've been taught and shaped by in our consumeristic, individualistic, hedonistic society. Meaning, whether you know it or not, you have been shaped and formed and influenced to actually believe that your desire is the greatest good. Now, we know that's true outside the church because usually we look outside the church and we pick on that all the time. All these people just doing whatever they want, identifying however they feel. It's just so clear that they're so broken. And, but it's also leaked its way into the church. So that when the music's not the way we want it, we get upset. Or when the things don't happen the way we think they should happen, we get upset. That actually church has just become another means of fulfilling our self-desires. When Jesus comes in and says, hey, the number one step in following me is actually to deny yourself. And it's hard when everything in our life has been set up to tell us that our desires are the greatest good. And then marketed and manipulated as corporations scream. So your desires are the greatest good. You, you desire this phone. You need this new phone. It's going to make your life so much easier. Want the new phone. Or you need this new car. It's going to fix all your problems. Come on, want it. You need those new jeans. You need this. And we have the solution as algorithms track your actions and your interests and, and feeds deeper, deeper into this call. Follow your heart. Just listen to your heart. Be whoever you want. So that we've come to this point in culture where the actual greatest sin is to not follow your heart. And where is that leading us? There's a philosopher that teaches at Baylor, at least he used to, he's probably retired now. His name's Robert C. Roberts, and he he wrote about this, and here's what he said. I think it's a really amazing quote. So we've been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct. By the way, sacrosanct, great vocab word, if you've never used that before, but it means, you know, unable to be criticized. 
holy might be another word we use, but not in that level. So just, we believe that the self has become unable to be criticized. Whatever you believe, you're not to question that belief. Whatever you desire, you're not to question that desire. No, you live into it. The self has become sacrosanct, just as in earlier times it was thought never fitting to deny God. Now it seems right to never deny oneself. And I think the only logical thing for us to do in a world that just parades that in front of you as much as it possibly can is to step back and just analyze. Number one, as we follow our hearts, as we live into this self-actualization-led society, where is it leading us? And you guys know because this is kind of the the, the drum I, I hit every single week, but, but I, I just really want to make sure we're being relevant and connecting. We're looking at a society that is fraying as depression rates increase and anxiety increase. There was a recent study talking about the correlation of the rise of social media and teen suicide, and that both have risen at about the same rate. That turns out as we feed more and more into self-desire, the results are actually not more happiness, more fulfillment, more content. It's the exact opposite. It's more brokenness and more despair and more ruin in our society and our culture and our families. And Jesus knows this because he designed the world. It's the command from Genesis 2. Don't eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Don't define it for yourself. Don't look at what you desire and say, this looks good. But trust God. It's the exact same command followed through. Jesus comes in and says, deny yourself. Is that the better alternative? To lay aside your comfort, your security, whatever you have, and follow Jesus wherever he calls, no matter how hard it is. Is that worth it? I don't know if I can actually answer that question for you. I mean, obviously I'm a pastor. I want to tell you, yeah, it's worth it. Come on, join up. But you have to make that decision. What I can tell you is my own personal story in that. This last March when we went overseas and visited Haley's sisters, the, we were in Croatia. Uh, final night, we're getting ready. We fly out really early in the morning. And if you've ever, you know, have long-distance family where you go and visit them, you know that feeling of the final night. No one says anything but everyone knows tomorrow we all leave. All of the meals we've shared, all the laughs, all the experiences, that all dissipates as we hop on a plane and we fly back across the world. No one talks about it. No one mentions it. But you can just feel it lingering in the air. So that night we're up in this little, very European apartment, this Airbnb that we were staying in. It's getting late and we're watching as we know we have to go to bed soon. No one's really saying much of anything. And all of a sudden, I look over in the kitchen. I have a picture that I just want to show you. This is uh, Haley and her two sisters and her mom. At that point, Haley was six months pregnant. We knew we were going to come home and have a baby that those other girls weren't going to see for over a year. We knew that we were going to go home and we actually weren't going to be able to do all the things that we had done. We weren't going to share meals anymore. It was a hard night. But ask any one of those girls if it's worth it. Because they wouldn't even stop to think twice. Because the reality is, as difficult as it is for them, they would not change what it means to live for the kingdom of God. 
even if it means that my son's going to grow up where he really plays with his cousins mostly over the internet because he's never going to see them in person other than maybe once or twice a year. Even in a world where, you know, they're going to be back this next year and we're going to have a great time with them, but we're going to turn around and send them right back to Croatia. Even in that world, we wouldn't change anything. Because that means my son gets to grow up knowing, hey, Griffin, the greatest call in your life is not actually to honor me and Haley. That is a call, but that's not the greatest call. The greatest call of your life is to follow Jesus wherever he takes you. And we will be wherever we are, following Jesus as well, celebrating and applauding you along the way. That's the commitment Jesus is calling you to. And it's not easy, but it's worth it. I cannot express to you how worth it it is. So the question then is, what is God calling you to? What's he calling you to? Because I'm telling you, the kingdom that he's inviting you to is far better than the kingdom you could build yourself. That kingdom is far better than the kingdom of Philip. That kingdom is far better than the kingdom of the Britain family because it's the eternal kingdom. So what would God call you to in that? Not that it would be easy. Not that, come on, follow Jesus, it's gonna be great. But that there might be times when it's hard and you stand in a European kitchen hugging the people you love knowing that tomorrow you say goodbye. And you really don't even know what stands in between the next time you see them, or even if you will. But it's what God called, so it's what we do. What's he calling you to? Maybe right now he's just calling you to come follow him for the first time, to deny yourself, to ask for his forgiveness. I would love to talk with you. I'll be right up here. But if, you've already following, if you're already following him, what does that mean? Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a God who loves us, that knows what's best for us, so that even when we fail and mess up, even when we miss out on our priorities, when we don't see what you're calling us to see. God, that you give us chances to come up for air and to look around and to realize that you're still calling, that your voice is still going out, still whispering. So God, would your spirit whisper in this room today that there might be someone that knows exactly what you're calling them to, that for fear or despair or whatever has been saying no, that you would finally give them the courage to say yes that we as a church would be so encouraging to that calling, that we would stand together even in the hard situations and trust that our God leads. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand.